Dear fathers, we come before you today. We just pray that you help us to understand your word. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit so that indeed we have confidence that whenever we open your word, we will be able to understand it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because following the news recently, uh, so the last week I've been watching Channel News Asia, and I was watching about how, if you know, in one of our neighboring countries, uh, some churches uh, were attacked and burned down, and uh, a few days later it was reported that several of them had been forced to be torn down. And I remember uh, when I was watching Channel News Asia, I remember the faces of the church members who were in the church as they watched their church being torn down. And this was actually uh, shown in the news, so there's nothing wrong for me to show it here. And I remember watching it and I felt a great sense of unease. I felt really sad about what was happening. And I'm sure that as you see these pictures too, you can feel their grief and their sadness etched into your mind. And I sort of thought to myself, okay, imagine if you were parachuted into this situation. Imagine if you were parachuted into this situation. What would you say to these fellow Christians that would comfort them, which would benefit them, which would edify them. Uh, obviously, you couldn't say, oh, don't worry, everything will be okay. You couldn't say, don't worry, you know, we will build your church again. Because in the face of real suffering, real opposition and real persecution, whatever, whatever words that we come up with seem very weak and hollow and, in fact, a bit pathetic. But I think what we need to bring to real suffering and real persecution are not the empty words of encouragement or comfort that we may bring, but rather we need to bring to them God's word. And I think that's where Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12 are so relevant. Uh, hopefully, by the end of today's passage, as we understand it a bit more, we will see that rather than being confused by general, Daniel chapter 11 and general, Daniel chapter 12, rather it becomes a great source of encouragement for us. Now we've been studying the book of Daniel over the last few weeks. And actually we've seen that Daniel chapter 10, 11 and 12 form part of one long vision. Okay, So we looked at Daniel 10 previously because it, there wasn't enough time to cover it all at once. But 10, 11 and 12 form one vision. And we remember in chapter 10, Daniel received a great vision of a great war. And it filled him with great dread and fear and overwhelming anguish. And remember he fell to the ground. And I can imagine if we could see the face of Daniel, we would see in his face etched with the same sadness and anguish that we saw in the pictures before of those people whose churches had been destroyed. That same feeling of fear and helplessness. Now today, as we look at chapter 11 and chapter 12, we see a development of what we saw in chapter 10 where God is lifting up Daniel and helping him up and encouraging him uh, because of the great vision, the terrifying vision that he'd seen. So turn with me to chapter 11, verse 2. And this continues on from what was actually being told to him in chapter 10. Now then, I tell you the truth, it says in verse 2, three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir everyone up against the kingdom of Greece. Now, remember when we looked at chapter 10, uh, we read, as you'll see here, next slide, oh there it is, yep, that 
the angel or the messenger that came to speak to Daniel was first to talk to him about the book of truth. Remember what was written in the book of truth. And we saw last, uh, last time around that the book of truth actually concerned the future. Now humanly, whenever we speak of the truth, we always speak about the events of the past. Uh, you know, we speak of the events of the past as truth. Japan invaded Singapore. True. Singapore gained independence in 1965. That's true. But we can never speak of the future as truth because for us as humans, that's in the realm of opinion or speculation or guesswork. But for God, when He speaks of the future, it is in the realm of truth. And so here, when the angel speaks to Daniel, he's speaking of the future from his perspective, even though it's history from our perspective. But we know that it's actually truth, that these things will come to pass, and these things God will bring to pass. Now we've already observed, if you see up here, the next slide, right, that God is, is the grand weaver. Remember we've been saying that when we look at the uh, God, the future, we don't understand what's happening because it all seems to be messed up. You know? So when you, when you weave a mat, when you look at the, 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 the view from behind, it's all a mess. right? But when you turn it around to the other side, it makes sense. So all through the way of Daniel, God has been revealing to us as a grand weaver of history and the future and the present, the one who is sovereign and powerful, what is about to happen. And we've seen, next slide, that he has been able to give us a very big, broad stroke of history through different visions. So in Daniel chapter 2, do you remember, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And that dream consisted of a very broad stroke, a broad sweep of history, which looked at all the big kingdoms till the time of Jesus and even, next slide, and even beyond that where Jesus would come and bring in his everlasting kingdom. Well, today in chapter 11, we actually see that God zooms in. He zooms in into a very specific period, a very specific period of that big grand vision. So imagine this is a broad sweep. Now it's like getting a magnifying glass and you're zooming in to a very specific period. And if you look at what it says here in verse 2 to verse 4 and 5 and 6, you see that there's great, great detail about what's going to happen. Right? So there were four kings, it says there, in Persia. And in verse 3, a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies, and the daughter of the, the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and, she, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Now, to many people, when they read the book of Daniel, it seems like there's so much detail and accuracy that surely it must have been written after the event. 
Because from a human perspective, people cannot be that accurate. Right? People cannot name and predict things with such great accuracy. But we already know that because God is so powerful, God knows the future, it is the truth. And He's already shown that because He already showed it through the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that with the next slide, where He gave Daniel a vision, which also told of the future, but from a different perspective. And here, when God zooms in, He's actually zooming into a very specific events which are going to happen very, very soon in Daniel's life. Okay, so what's the next slide? So this is the, the period, okay? So, um, sorry if it's a bit small. The period that we were looking at before was, the whole book of Daniel was from the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the Middle Persian Empire. Next slide, keep going. The next slide. Okay, which then went on. And they went all the way to the Roman period to the time of Jesus. The period which we're zooming in now, next slide, consists of this period. Hey, how come it's uh what happened to the my arrow got too long, is it? Oh, don't worry, don't worry, okay. Did, okay, so anyway, it says that there will be four kings. Okay, so there were four kings. The main one was Cyrus, then it was Darius, don't know how to spell that. Okay, then Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Okay, so there were four kings in the Persian Empire. And as we saw in chapter 10, God had ordained that the angel would go and fight against the prince of Persia, and another mighty kingdom would come, which would be the Greek Empire. Now the Greek Empire... Oh, oh go back, go back, go back. Okay. Oh, we lost him. Poor Alexander the Great. Okay, he's just Alexander the... Okay, anyway, so Alexander the Great would be the next great king that would come, and he would come from the Greek kingdom. Next slide. Okay, Alex, so this was the Medo-Persian Empire, and it was very big, right? It's all green. Next slide. But this would be taken over by the Greeks and led by Alexander the Great. And this is, do you see the red line? This is the extent of Alexander the Great's empire. Now, Alexander would die 13 years later, and he, he basically ruled this uh, area when he was a very young man, only in his 30s. Okay, so it makes you feel very inadequate, right? What have you done? You're 30 years old. Here's this man, he's ruled half of, half of the world and you're like doing nothing, right? Okay, but don't feel bad because he died 13 years later, so he obviously didn't live long to enjoy it. But what happened was, when he died, um, you can see that his kingdom was divided to the four winds. So it was divided to this, the Pol- uh, Ptolemy uh, king, uh, kingdom, the Seleucid kingdom, and then there were the, these other generals up here, which were kind of minor. And what happens is the Bible zooms in into these two, Ptolemy and the Seleucid Kingdom, because they are the ones who will most affect Jerusalem. And what happens is, we are told, if we bother to read it, and for many of you in the Bible study, you'll see that actually there's all this detail which you don't understand. But all of it is actually historical, because it reflects how the, the ebb and flow of these two kingdoms going back and forth, fighting like over Israel, would be like, um, you know, the, 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 the current and the tides coming in and out, in and out. So basically what happens is, the, the Ptolemic uh, kingdom first rules uh, Israel and has control over it, but over time the Seleucid kingdom then takes over and rules over it. Next slide. 
And actually, as we've been reading, you're thinking, you know, what's all this? The king of the north, king of the south, they get married, then alliance here, alliance there. It's all very real, and it's all very sordid. If you actually read the history books, it's all quite interesting if you're into that sort of stuff. So you can see that there was a polemic kingdom, and then there was a Seleucid kingdom, and they're both sort of running parallel to one another, and then they try to marry their daughters off to one another, and then uh, it's quite interesting, actually, if I tell you the story, but it's kind of irrelevant here, but... But like this guy's first wife kills this person and then they poison one another and then it's all that sort of stuff, okay? But that's not the real story because that actually forms the background to what's really important. Because what's really important actually comes in verse uh, 21, which is where we got uh, Mason to start reading from. Because we are told in verse 21 of this person called the contemptible person. And this contemptible person actually occupies 15 verses of chapter 11, which is made out of 45 verses. So he actually takes up the vast majority of this historical prediction, or this forward-looking prediction for Daniel. So what do we learn about this contemptible person? Well, particularly, we learn that this contemptible person is contemptible. Uh, you know, contemptible is someone you look down on or you frown upon because they've done bad things. And this person is contemptible, we read in verse 21, because first of all, he's not actually given the honor of royalty. Right? This contemptible person was Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, which is this guy here. Okay? Uh, and he wasn't actually meant to be king. It was actually meant to be his brother who was meant to be king. But we read in history that somehow through intrigue, through bribery, through underhanded means to deceit, he was able to to gain power. And even when he was ruling, he ruled in a very, very deceitful and underhanded way. He was a very cunning person. Okay? It says here, he will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure. He will seize it through intrigue. And then an overwhelming army will be swept away before it. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. You see that word keeps coming up, deceitful, intrigued. He's a very cunning sort of person. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, again, see the same theme, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder and loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. So what we see here is, uh, this contemptible person, Antiochus IV, was a very cunning sort of person. right? He didn't actually gain power because he was the rightful person. And he didn't actually, wasn't actually a person who was a, a very good general, but he just was able to corrupt and to bribe his way to get past, uh, I guess, his opposition and go what he needed. But what we read is, uh, unfortunately, later on he overreached himself. So in verse 29, we read, At the appointed time, he will invade the, north, the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships from the western coastland will oppose him and he will lose heart. And then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortresses 
and will abolish the temple, the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, and the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will struck many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Now what we see here is that much later on, uh, this Antiochus IV, in 168 BC, next slide, okay, uh, next slide, will try to come down and invade the Ptolemaic kingdom. But what happened is at the end of Antiochus IV's reign, you can see that the Seleucid kingdom was getting weaker and weaker. You see, so this part got invaded by the Parthians and then later on this part as well until they were kind of got smaller and smaller. And here the Ptolemaic Empire was starting to get bigger and bigger and stronger. So when they tried to invade the uh, uh, south again, what happened? Ships from the west, the Roman Empire, they came together with an alliance with the Ptolemaic kingdom and they defeated the Seleucids. Now, obviously, this didn't make uh, Antiochus IV a very happy man. And what he tried to do was consolidate his rule on his kingdom because, you know, he was losing, he was losing land on his east to the Parthians and then he was like getting threatened by the West, by the Romans and the Ptolemic people. So what he did was he tried to make sure that what was left was very, very loyal to him. And he was a Greek. Remember, they were Greeks to begin with. So what he tried to do was he tried to turn the Jews to make them Greek. All right, so remember Nebuchadnezzar, what he tried to do before? He tried to get the Jewish people to worship his gods and to worship him. And that's exactly what Antiochus IV did as well. He tried to change the language and the culture, and most of all, uh, the religion of the Jews. And what we read here is very interesting, right? So you see here that he used the carrot and the stick approach. It says that if you read very carefully, right, in verse 30, he showed favor for those who forsake the holy covenant. Verse 32, with flattery, he will corrupt those who violated the covenant. That was the carrot. The stick was where he would, he would actually, with great, great force, actually persecute those who resisted him. He would burn, use the sword, capture and plunder those who resisted him. Now, if you see up here, on this timeline again, next slide, you see that, um, okay, next one. Uh, next one, next one. Okay, next one, next one. Okay, you see that here, when Alexander the Great came, he already started the Hellenization. Helen is like a, make it like a Greek, Greek colony, right? But Antiochus would try to, to push that to its furthest extent. Now, how bad was it there during this time when Antiochus IV tried to use the carrot and the stick approach to change the Jews to become Greeks? Well, we don't actually have it in our Bibles. But there's this thing called the uh, 
Uh, oh, I've forgotten what it is now. But you know, in between the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there's actually writings which the, the Catholic Church regards as part of their scripture. Um, oh, the Apocrypha. That's right. I didn't write it down. I thought I remember it, but I didn't. I'm getting old. Anyway, but we don't regard it as part of scripture because the Jewish people don't regard it as scripture, but they regard it as helpful information which informs us of what happened between the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi and the coming of Jesus. And when I was in theological college, we were meant to read it a bit, so we did. And in 1 Maccabees 2.18, for your own information if you want to look it up, in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 24, it actually speaks of what happened when Antiochus IV came and tried to enforce his edict that the Jews become like Greeks. So first of all, we read in history that the high priests and the religious officials, see, he's a very cunning person, remember? He was a very deceitful and, and cunning person. He got the high priests and the religious officials, and he said to them, look, if you, if you listen to me, I will give you the title of being friends of the king. I mean, what's the big deal? Like, I mean, who, who cares about friends of the king? I mean, but, but maybe it sounds, it must have been a big deal, deal then, like, okay, to be a friend of the king. And he honored them with silver, gold, and many gifts. So first of all, he tried to entice and corrupt the religious establishment, the religious leaders. Other people, he said, look, if you, if you choose to give up God and come and follow uh, my Greek program, I will reward you with high office in the civil service. So, you know, you come, you can become a civil servant or whatever and, and be, you know, have a stable job, high office. And he get, made an office of money and made them rich. But at the same time as we've read here, we know that he replaced the worship of God in the temple with the worship of his own gods, Zeus, you know, all the Greek gods. Okay? And he sacrificed unclean animals at the altar, which is why it says he, he, he caused the abomination which caused the desolation of the temple. And for those people who refused to accept the carrot and worship his God, he burned he plundered, he went to their houses, took all your stuff, he killed by the sword and tortured you, and basically uh, made life unimaginably difficult. Now, it says here that God predicts that many of the wise continue to firmly resist him. In fact, verse 33, the wise continue to instruct Many, they continue to teach other people. They're not just hiding under, you know, keeping their head down so that they won't get hurt. They're actually still actively helping other people. And verse 35 says a, a very remarkable thing for the modern mind, right? Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. Now, I wonder whether we really understand what that means. When you're being persecuted, I mean really, really persecuted, your house is being robbed, you're losing your job, you're being put in jail, you're tortured by the sword, you're being burned, would you still witness and teach other people? I don't know about you, but that's not the natural thing to do, right? I mean, if people are looking to persecute me as a Christian, first thing I do is I want to hide under a, a, a bush, right? So no one sees me. But here are people 
that God said, and they did indeed, will stand up to persecution, firmly resist persecution. But not just firmly resist persecution, but stand up and instruct other people to hold on to their faith and to witness to that, even in the face of this hardship. And why would they be willing to do that? Well, that's where verse 35 comes in, isn't it? The wise, these people who hold on to Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but hold on to God at that time, they stumble, they are, they, are, they, are, they are having a hard time because God is refining them, purifying them, and making them spotless before the end. You see, verse 35 is actually a shocking verse because God is the one who is bringing suffering, persecution, hardship, so that He is purifying His people and refining them. Now, I think that it's very hard for us to accept and understand that because we are sort of living in the modern world where we do everything to avoid suffering. I mean, that's why we go to see doctors, right? Because we want pain relief medicine. We want to avoid all sorts of suffering in this world. Somehow we think that suffering is not part of the natural life. And I think that as Christians, many, many Christians fall into the same delusion that God's will for us is to have health and prosperity and zero suffering. But I like what J.I. Packer said when I read this uh, reading that he had last week on October the 3rd. He said, Suffering is the Christian road's home. Right, Suffering is the Christian road's home. And I was thinking, that's exactly right. When we read this passage, God is actually saying that as Christians, we do not consider suffering as a stranger in our life, but it's actually like a, like a friend. We're able to welcome suffering. It is the way home for us. And that's exactly what is being said here. That God is telling Daniel that the suffering is coming in to purify, to refine, and to make spotless his people. I don't think that it is possible for us to be a Christian and not expect persecution and hardship in this life. Jesus has already warned us of this, and all the more as we look at this passage. There is no glorification without persecution. Any of us think that we can go through life as a Christian and not be persecuted at all is not really a Christian. You're not standing up for God. What you're opening yourself up to is the carrot and stick approach, right? Because the world, in many ways, is like Antiochus IV. It attracts you with flattery, with deceit, right? And attracts you to turn against God. And says, if you turn back to me, if you worship what the world worships, if you have the values that the world values, then you will have all these things. You will have high office, you will have money, you will have, uh, I guess, prestige and status in this life. But though we may not suffer plunder, sword, burning, or imprisonment, but yet, at the other end, there is the stick. If you choose to be faithful, if you choose to live as the wise, well then, God will purify you, make you spotless, 
And He will also refine you. And that is by the means of suffering. Now as we come to verse 36 to 39, uh, this depressing image kind of continues on. But what changes here is that it actually becomes very fuzzy. Because in verse 36 it says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors, nor for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. Now here we see fuzziness and clarity. Now it is fuzzy because when we look at everything from chapter 11 verse 2 to 35, everything is very, very historically true and real and accurate. But the problem is everything from verse 36 onwards becomes very fuzzy because it doesn't fit into the historical picture that we know of the period of Antiochus IV. It sort of begins like it looks like him, but then it changes and it morphs into something which is very, very fuzzy. But what is clear here is that Antiochus is sort of like a representative type or a pattern of an anti-God ruler. So what it says here, when we read it, we think, ah, this is so confusing. What does it mean? It says, he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women. And it's like, ah, yeah, what is he talking about? What god is desired by women? But apparently, some of the Greek gods were supposed to be very desired, or like, were, like you know, I suppose, that, you know, if you see the Greek gods, some of them are very handsome and, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? So according to uh, um, Greek mythology, some of the Greek gods were like very... Uh, uh, I guess dude or, or uh, very he-man or whatever, which the women really liked. But what I'm sort of saying though, Antiochus would magnify and raise himself even above these gods so that he'll be worshipped. And what it's really saying is that in every generation, in every season, in every time, there'll be a person or, or, or a representative of Antiochus who will magnify himself above even the gods of his generation and will seek to be worshipped and will seek to take away worship from the God who deserves it. And that's why I think when we look at the Bible, we see over and over again that the Bible warns us that in, in its own time, there will come an Antiochus sort of person, a person with great cunning, a person of great flattery, who will try to draw away people and at the same time punish people and will raise himself up to be beyond God himself. So Matthew chapter 24, if you look up here, right, you notice, think of Antiochus IV and you see Antiochus IV in these pictures. Right? It's a bit like, um, I can't remember which movie I saw, but you, know, you sort of see this person in history all over the different places, but it doesn't work anyway. Okay, so if you have a look at this picture, think of Antiochus IV, right? Jesus said, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of should the prophet Daniel let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Now obviously Jesus, when he was speaking of the prophet Daniel, he was referring to He was referring to someone like the person of Antiochus IV. Because we already know that Antiochus IV did this in in the period of 165 BC. But yet Jesus is speaking of another abomination that causes desolation. And this time in 70 AD, after he dies. In 2 Thessalonians it says this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will come until the rebellion occurs. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Isn't this person like Antiochus IV? A person who, who exalts himself and proclaims himself to be God, a man of lawlessness who is deceiving people. Again, Revelation chapter 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. See, over and over again in these three passages, there will be an Antiochus the fourth person coming into this world in our lifetime. But at the same time, in all three of these passages, it mirrors what 11 says. It calls for patient endurance, standing firm, faithfulness. And the reason, the real reason why we are to do this comes in chapter 12. And actually, if you read chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, congratulations, right? Because verse 1 to 4, many scholars say, is the most significant passage, one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. And I'll show you why. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects his people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as not has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes will sleep, sorry, who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, again that word wise, who shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Now I say that you are very privileged to read chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. Why? Here in verse 1 to 4 is the most developed, the most 
clear and significant passage in the Old Testament which speaks of the resurrection of the dead and the life eternal. See, think about it for a second. Anywhere else in the Old Testament which is so clear about everlasting life? There's not, isn't it? When you read chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, you could actually put it into the New Testament and it wouldn't be out of place. But here's the real reason why the people of Daniel, the people of Jesus' time, the people of our time must keep pressing on, being faithful and continuing to teach others because our names are written in the book of life. See, the most important thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing, someone said before. And what is the main thing for us as Christians? It is to realize our names are written in the book of life, where we, we will awake to everlasting life, where we will shine with the brightness of heaven and to be like the stars forever and ever. You see, what the Bible says here is the majesty of everlasting life. We are able to cope with suffering if we know that we will live forever and ever. And imagine shining with the brightness of heaven to be like a star shining forever and ever. Now last week we filled out the feedback form and, and I really appreciate many of you filling out the feedback form. And I was going through the feedback form and this is anonymous, so you don't know who wrote this anyway. And someone wrote a very, very profound feedback. Uh, you know, usually when you read feedback, it's all about all sorts of you know, other things. But this person said the question. He was worried that the God's people in BTPC would not be able to stand firm if we had to suffer persecution like people in other countries. And I was like, whoa, this guy, this person has very deep feedback. But I think it's a very relevant question. Would we as God's people be able to stand firm, to keep preaching, to keep persevering if we had to suffer persecution like other people in other countries for their faith? And I think that's a very, very good question. Are we, are we thinking rightly is, is, our, is our main thing in our mind about having our names written in the book of life and persevering to the end and shining like stars forever? Now, the real question that Daniel struggles with here in verse 5 to the very end is how long do I have to suffer for God? Right? Because you know I don't mind suffering for one day, maybe a week, maybe two weeks at the most, but how long do I have to suffer for? Because don't forget, when we think of the scope of history, uh, actually, uh, if you look at the timeline again, right? Uh, we are SG50, okay? Singapore has been independent for 50 years. The, the period of time between the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and all these struggles happening was 270 years, okay? So that's like SG250, okay? So... So he's looking at a period of struggle for his people for 250 years. So he's asking God, and he doesn't know it's 250 years, but he knows it's a very, very long time. He's asking God, how long? How long do we have to suffer for? How long do we have to struggle? How long do we have to stand firm? And God gives a really strange answer to the messenger. Right? He gives a couple of numbers. 
He says, alright, in verse 7, The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the Holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Now this must be a terrifying thing to hear, right? Because it means that just when things are at the very worst, that's when it will end. But what does it mean, this times, times and half a time? We've already come across this number before in Daniel chapter 7. okay? And again, this was within the context of God God's people suffering from somebody, some king who who oppresses saints and try to change the set times and the laws. And then it says the saints will be handed over to him for a, a time, a times, and half a time. Now, time, times, and half a time is literally three and a half because you know time is one, times is two, and then half is three and a half, okay? So we said last time that actually the number seven is a very significant number in the Bible. Right? Seven is the picture of completeness, fullness. Uh, it is its totality, its entirety. So three and a half times is half of seven. What it represents is a relatively long period of time, but it's not the fullness of time. It is limited. It is restricted. It feels long, but it's actually not its totality, it's not its fullness. So I think what God is saying to Daniel when he says, how long do we have to suffer? How long do we have to persevere? How long to struggle? He's saying it's going to feel long, it's going to feel like an unbearably long time, but it will come to an end and it will be restricted. Verse 11 to 12 give us some additional information. It says in verse 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Now what does this mean? Well, 1,290 is actually three and a half years. Okay? So what's 1,335? That's another 45 days. Now... Uh, that's kind of weird, right? But he already said it's going to be times, times and a half. So why is there another 45 days? Well, I think the, the, the most probable and the most logical way of understanding it is God is saying, just as you think you can't go on anymore, just hold on for a little bit more. If you've already been holding on for 1,290 days, then what's another 45 days? Right, just when you feel that you can't go on anymore holding on to God, just as you feel that your, your, your energy and your strength is at the end, he's saying, hold on just for a little bit more. I remember reading somewhere, some quote somewhere, which says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I think what this passage is trying to address here is the problem of fatigue. I can hold on for one week, two weeks, a year. But how do I hold on for more? And God says, hold on just for a little more. Just for a little more. 
Now we began with uh, the introduction talking about the people from Aceh, right? Oh, no, I should to say where I came from. Anyway, our neighboring country. Um, and uh, and remember I said, what, what should we say to the people, uh, next slide, who, who are so, you know, you can really feel their pain, just on looking at these pictures. Their pain is undeniable. I would feel the same way. You know, and this is not part of the. I mean, how would they go about their daily lives, the hardships they would they would experience, the pain that they experience? Well, I think that as we look at Daniel 11, we would say to them, well, suffering is part of the journey home as a Christian. That there will always be in every generation an Antiochus the fourth, which seeks to oppress, which seeks to persecute God's people, and also at the same time seeks to lure God's people away. And I think that we need to learn that lesson. We need to learn that for ourselves, one day, we must pray to God, it will not be as bad as that situation. One day, maybe it's for you, it's today, you will face hardship, suffering, persecution uh, by people who are seeking to draw you away from God. They will try all sorts of ways and means by flattery, by deceit, by the stick, by hardship, persecution. But remember, what is the main thing? The main thing is that your names are written in the book of life. That you will have eternal life and shine like the brightness of heaven, like the stars forever and ever. Jesus said, to his apostles. You may see Satan fall down from heaven, but do not rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That is the most important thing. And I pray for each and every one of us, when we do suffer and we feel like giving up, we will remember that is the most important thing and that we will hold on just for a little while longer. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, We pray for all of us here to see that indeed suffering is the way home to heaven. That in every season, in every generation, in every time, no Christian is immune from persecution and suffering. That it is unrealistic and a mockery of your plan to believe that we can go through life without suffering for Jesus Christ. Help us to learn the lessons from Daniel 11 and 12. To see that we must stand firm. We must firmly resist. We must continue to teach and preach to others. We must be like the wise who are faithful and not deceived by the temptations to leave you, dear Father. We pray for, for those of us here today who may be under stress from temptation to leave you, from pressure of the world. We pray that you may strengthen them with your word today, that they may hold on because they see that the most important thing is that their names are written in the book of life and that they may shine with the brightness of heaven like stars forever and ever. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.